Hey everyone, I'm Dan Wu and welcome to The Reorg. Every other week, I'll bring on a guest and discuss everything from organizational structure to leadership to building community and culture. I believe that a business is only as good as the people behind it. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter at reorgpod.com. My guest today is Archie Puri. Archie is the Chief Product Officer at Galileo, following a long and successful career as a product leader and general manager at Braintree Payments. In this conversation, we discussed how calligraphy set her foundation for becoming a product manager, signs of a low-performing organization, and the power of declaring your company values to your team. Archie is filled with wisdom, and I took away some new ways of thinking about management and leadership. I hope you enjoy this one. Welcome to another episode of The Reorg, everyone. I am honored to introduce my guest today, Archie Puri. Archie started her career as a systems engineer and business analyst before joining Yahoo. And after nearly eight years at Yahoo, she joined Braintree Payments in 2012 as one of the first product managers. She rose up the ranks at Braintree to her most recent position as general manager and is also VP of Enterprise Partner Solutions at PayPal. Outside of that, she was named as one of the top 25 most influential women in payments for two consecutive years. She's also a Women in Fintech Advisory Board member and a founding member of the San Francisco chapter of Chief, which is a private network designed specifically for senior women leaders. So welcome to the reorg, Archie. Dan, thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to be here today. As I was thinking about an interesting place to start our conversation, I was doing research and apparently you taught yourself calligraphy during the summer between high school and college. And so I'm just curious if you could talk about what inspired you to teach yourself calligraphy and how you apply the traits and skill sets needed for calligraphy into your professional life. Ooh, yeah, that's a very um, that's a very interesting one. So going from high school to college that summer, I needed I needed extra pocket money for college just just to do fun stuff. And I come from a family of very humble origins, right? And so I stumbled upon calligraphy because I saw someone doing it. And one of my friends was um, going, was training at a school learning calligraphy. But given our circumstances, I couldn't afford to go to a school to learn the skill. And like most things in my life, all of my skills are fairly Mm self-taught. And that is one of the things I've loved is I love learning. And with I figured out what the smallest amount of investment was. And that was about getting, uh, and I used to do it on regular printer paper. So finding printer paper and finding a regular pen and I had to create my own uh, nibs to do it. And that was great because it taught me a lot about scrappiness. And I think calligraphy laid some of my earliest foundations of product work. I figured out how to be scrappy to learn, start learning a new skill. As I started getting better at it, I realized that to produce really good, good work, you needed both a very steady hand as well as a lot of patience. And most people associate calligraphy with letters and alphabets, but the style of calligraphy that I started doing was actually taking brush strokes and pen strokes to form small designs. Imagine in a graph paper, in the square of a graph paper and replicating that pattern, say in 30 by four squares and that panel. And so that meant that every square had a stroke and then you had to replicate the exact same stroke mm-hmm. in, in desired patterns. So what that taught me was one, 
your hand has to be absolutely steady. And second, it takes hours of like literally backbreaking work to get that full panel. You can't rush it. The moment you rush, it's almost as though your um, the art knows that you're rushing it and the strokes just don't come out. And it also means that you have to have a very clear vision of what the end product should look like, but you have to have the patience to stick with it and execute it little by little with the same level of steadiness and precision. And over a period of time, you can produce something really beautiful, which is not very different from how we build products. You have to have a very clear end state of where you're taking your product, where it is heading, but it is not something you can do overnight. You can't get overnight success with the platform, with products, with the market. You mm -hmm. have to keep at it and you have to keep at it with the same level of intensity and effort. You mentioned a lot about scrappiness, having a clear vision, having patience, sticking to a process. I, I think you can probably attribute some of your success at Braintree to some of those skills, having patience and scrappiness, being able to see mm -hmm. the bigger picture, waiting for results to play out versus trying to hope that they appear as soon as you want them to. Could you talk about your journey at Braintree? I think my story at Braintree is more about the people that I worked with because the people are the ones that helped me in that journey. And if it had not been for the people in terms of uh, people I partnered with, people who were on my team, uh, my managers, uh, leaders I was working with, mm -hmm. that journey would not have been as interesting. Mm -hmm. And people also include some of our customers. And so when I joined Braintree in 2012, I was at a point in my career where I wanted to hone my craft of product management. And I, and I was working at um, Yahoo then, and I remember going to one of my mentors and walking him through my map of the next 40 years and the work I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. And I'm like, I'm here and this is my starting point. And I told him I wanted to become a better product manager. And he was like, the path to becoming a better product manager and honing your craft is going to lead you out of Yahoo. And so you need to figure out what is it that you're looking for. And I spent a lot of time and I knew that certain things that I wanted to optimize for in my next role. Number one was I wanted something that was smaller. Yahoo at that time was at a really large scale. And so I wanted a smaller place where I could have more ability and leeway to build a product end to end. Second, I didn't have a great appetite for risk. I, I still don't. I am not person who's going to start a new idea at least not yet i hope mm -hmm. one day i am yeah and so i wanted to i wanted out uh, wanted a proven out business model mm -hmm. and braintree was that at that point in that it had got its series a funding and there was a revenue model it was popular there was a standing in the market then the next thing for me was i wanted to be involved in a growth story i wanted to help grow the business grow the teams and mm -hmm. exercise my leadership skills. And when I say exercising leadership skills, I don't necessarily mean a leadership title. Everybody is a leader. And every single time you make a choice, when you see a problem, when you see a situation and you want to make it better, and you take the initiative to do that is what being a leader means. Mm -hmm. And Braintree at that time, the role was based um, on the West Coast. And it was myself, my engineering partner and three other people in the office, whereas the rest of Braintree was in Chicago. So the job was almost dual. It was taking all of Braintree's existing products international, as well as then setting up an office and a presence closer to some of our customers 
and building the culture of an office because when I was employee number 90. So when I'm in an office of five people, there were close to 85 other people in a different location. We qualified as a satellite office. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to grow from there to creating its own culture? And every action we take reflects on the office. And so when you start creating a brand and identity and credibility for the office, what does that look like? That was incredibly appealing for me. It was like a mixed bag of problems. And so that's how I ended up joining Braintree. And and plus it was fintech. And I was looking to move away from some of the work I was doing. It was in search advertising. Mm -hmm. And fintech and payments is as real as products can get. Anytime you start dealing with money, it gets very personal very, very quickly Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. So I started there. And for, I think, since then, Pretty much every year or 12 to 18 months, my role has evolved to more responsibility. I started out as a PM for our backend integrations. From there, I started leading um, product management for anyone who was based out of our West Coast offices. Then soon, um, I started leading it for all of the payments and platform products. Then I was leading global product management for Braintree. This was about 2017 onwards. And then in 2018, we added the program management function because until then, Braintree never had that. Mm -hmm. And we were getting to a level of complexity where we needed Mm -hmm. a good program function. Mm -hmm. We needed people coming in who could actually help us understand the breadth of our portfolio and track that as well as help us drive more complex initiatives. And so from there, I've done various other roles. At some point, I started leading our data platform and engineering data sciences teams. Then it was product and engineering for all of our acquiring solutions. And then most recently, earlier this year, it was the GM function for Braintree, as well as leading product and engineering for PayPal's enterprise and partner solutions. So if you ask me, was that the intent 12 years ago, uh, eight years ago when I started? No, that was not my intent. I think at that time, the goal I had set for myself was I was giving myself five years to be a really good PM. Mm -hmm. And if I felt like in five years time, I couldn't succeed in being a PM, I would have figured out what else I was probably good at. I, I would say it turned out well. Yeah, you were definitely part of a growth story, which is which is one of your goals. Yeah, it definitely helped that Braintree was growing a lot. And so that meant that we Mm -hmm. were having very interesting problems to solve. Mm -hmm. We had interesting problems from a product side on kinds of products we have to build, making sure our platform was able to scale, as well as with all of that growth came problems of, if you're growing our team, how do we maintain the culture of our team and the practices? Like at every inflection point of growth, how do you take the team and scale it further? Mm-hmm. And so that was interesting problems always make for interesting stories. One of the things that I notice is reorgs tend to happen when you need to shift around teams to work in a better or more efficient way because growth is happening or there's a change in the market. I guess one question I had was, what was the first reality check you had as a manager? I avoided being a manager for the longest time in my career. I would say for at least a good 15 years. Mm-hmm. Like I would do anything except be a manager mm-hmm. because I'm an introvert and I do not derive my energy from people. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore I'm always very mindful of the fact that um, inherently maybe I'm not managing people is not my strong point. And so I try to avoid it for the longest time. But when mm-hmm. I started managing people, I will tell 
you, irrespective of when you take that on, your first couple of years are going to be very hard because now you almost have to, you almost have to figure out how to, what is the right level of engagement that you need to have with your teammate to give them enough rope to be able to go do things and grow, to give them um, enough support where they feel independent, but at the same time, have your finger on the pulse without actually micromanaging. And I think definitely in those early years, I never figured out the distinction between micromanaging someone versus giving them enough rope. Mm-hmm. And I think, at least I can safely say for the people I managed then, they probably felt quite stifled. <laughs> yeah, there's this balance. As employees, we do our best work when we feel like we have this room and freedom for creativity in our work. And yes. so as a manager, you have to balance allowing your employees to find that as well as keeping everyone on track. Yeah, I, I agree. And it is sometimes also a skill. It's it's a human interaction. And there are some people who are exceptionally gifted at human interactions. And there are some people like me who are socially awkward. And so human interactions in general are rough. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was that part that I had to learn. Mm. And I think what was great was after a point, I figured out I did not have to do it in the way that most books or guides recommend, I could find my own unique style in managing people. And I think over a period of time, I've derived that I operate from a place of being very candid, because I recognize that I may not be able to read people accurately, I may not be able to read someone's emotions, I may not be able to figure out what is it that they need versus what I'm giving them. Some people are intuitive and are able to do that. It was a very hard recognition that I'm just not among those people. Mm -hmm. And so I now have a very specific method to how I engage where I set expectations up front. I have specific check-ins on the calendar that both my teammates as well as I know that the topic of conversation is going to be about how they're doing, what help do they need, and how can I be a better manager for them. I like that. Building a management style that is personal to you because we're all different. We can't all read how to win friends and influence people and take the same things away. Oh my goodness. I have read that book to the point (laughs) where it has all pages have dog ears. That's great. Another question I had is as the team is growing, the product team growing and scaling, what are the things that you're looking for as a manager of managers to get a hint that the organization is not humming as it should be? People don't feel like there's direction, there's lack of kind of inspiration. What sort of indicators do you key off of to figure that out? I had to learn those the hard way, but I think there are a number of Mm. them that uh, you could very easily figure out. One, the one I use is usually in team meetings, I will use self to others airtime ratio, which means if I find myself doing a lot of the talking in team meetings, as opposed to different members of the team talking or the them talking amongst themselves or bringing up issues that the group is addressing. When that starts happening, the group is very cohesive Mm -hmm. and it should start with your leadership team that has to be extremely cohesive because Mm -hmm. if they are cohesive, then their, their groups are going to be that way. And then those, then everyone starts becoming one more, one unit that actually starts marching in the same direction. Because most often than not, I think where issues arise is where people don't have the same context and they don't see the world in the same way. And so one of the big things that I try to push for with the teams is shared context and collective success. 
which means it does not matter if any one of us is successful if our if all of us together as a team are not successful and we can't be invested in each other's success unless we see the context the same way unless each of us is familiar with each other's challenges goals what are we optimizing mm-hmm. for what are we optimizing for as a product team as a business what do our customers want us to optimize for and all of that is context that you have to share so one is self to other airtime ratio is mm-hmm. one indicator for me the other one is as i have skip levels if i have done a good job and all of the leaders have done a good job in communicating the vision then everyone on the ground should be able to repeat it back to you mm-hmm. and it's not about quiz time right it's not like a pop quiz that like my one on one with my skip levels that will be tell me what the vision of this company is no it's having them talk about their work and why they find their work useful and inspiring is a very good way to understand if the direction is clear for the team ultimately we want people who are empowered who are inspired by where we are heading and actually understand why they need to deeply understand the why mm-hmm. of it because if they don't they are not going to do their best work i liked your comment on shared context and collective success. So for the listeners, I was also uh, an employee at Braintree for a while. And I always felt like we all had shared goals. Like it never felt like there were silos in terms of weird P&Ls in certain regions or for certain product teams, or they had different metrics that didn't align. To me, maybe it was the nature of my work or, or the level that I was at, but I never got that sense that there was a friction amongst teams. Yeah, and I think declaring that is how we are going to roll is very powerful. Like once you set expectations with the team that, hey, we all value shared context and collective success, you've already declared your hand. Now there is, there is no one in the team who can say that I didn't know we valued it. I didn't, like people don't have to take on the labor of discovering that we value it. If we tell that, hey, this is what we value as a team and this is how we'd like to operate, that becomes a very powerful thing because then you start seeing people automatically changing in the way they interact with each other and you're right braintree didn't have that because we used to spend a lot of time and energy actually communicating on some of these things communicating on our values on our culture on our behaviors talking a lot about what is it that we wanted out of the business what does success look like and being very open and accepting about our problems no product or platform is perfect no team is perfect mm-hmm. but what is more important is we continue to work on it little by little to improve it improvement is always continual this goes back to my days of doing a lot of process certifications <laughs> where there's a difference between continuous and continual is where you build on top of what you've already improved but you do it as a discipline on a regular basis and i think that is a philosophy we have adopted mm-hmm. the other way in which i think some of this manifests is oftentimes we think about it in terms of product teams and product management teams but that context needs to be equal and even on the engineering side mm-hmm. which means that not only do i have to invest in bringing my leadership team up to speed i have to ensure my engineering partner is right along with me on that journey and both our leadership teams are hearing and learning from both of us mm-hmm. and when that happens that is when you start seeing things that you were describing where on the ground you felt like there weren't there wasn't friction we weren't battling for pnl we were all very cohesive in the direction in which we were going i had a, another question for you on leadership so i know you've had the chance to work with some great leaders 
over the years. Is there a certain leader or two that you learned from a lot? And what were the traits that really stood out to you that impacted you in a different way? So I think for me, I can't say that there was any one leader I learned from the most. I was just very fortunate in my career to encounter leaders who were just, who at least I thought were just exceptional in what they did. And I learned from each of these people, right? Like I learned from when I, I observed Bill, Bill Reddy working and th- in conversations and talking about product. What I learned from him was how to keep customers at the center of everything that we do. And if we solve for the customer and build products towards for them, and their pain points, market success will follow. And so when I think about a visionary leader, he's the person that I would pick. Likewise, when I think about Juan Benitez, I've worked with him for the longest time. Mm -hmm. And when I think about a leader um, that is people first and driven and operates from a very strong set of values and how to be almost like that humane leader Mm -hmm. that just has such a stellar moral fabric. And it's like, Everyone who knows Juan will say that about him, I think. And that's like how to lead with values is what I learned from him. I've had other leaders I've worked with. I've worked with, like I referenced earlier in this conversation, my mentor, Mark Morrissey. He's someone who I've learned great product practices from. Hmm. How to think about the craft of product management and how to keep bringing teams along to hone that craft. And I learned that from him. I worked with John McElwain and I learned how to hustle. John has this very inherent sense of urgency to make things happen and to produce results. And that kind of energy is very contagious. And Mm -hmm. so how do you take that and learn to create that energy Mm -hmm. for your teams? Because someone needs to be that constant energizer bunny in in the team. I used to always like, it's something that is not inherent to me. And so for me, that was, Mm -hmm. that was very great to, to watch. And then I worked with, Amajawar, who used to be the CFO as well as CEO of Braintree, just exceptional in negotiations and how he looks at data in managing risks. So for me, working with all of these people has been pretty formative in my approach towards leadership because each of them has helped shape me into the leader that I am today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like how it, it feels like every one of those leaders has their own superpower and you're yes. just trying to do your best to take some of their superpowers and bring it to your own work and your own day to day. That's awesome. So I wanted to end the conversation on the topic of diversity and inclusion. I know you are an advocate of diversity and inclusion. You're on the Women in Fintech Advisory Board. You are founding member of Chief, which is a private network designed for senior women leaders. Could you talk about the role that it's played in your professional life and some of the things that you've done to promote more diversity and inclusion in your work? Yeah, I think diversity and inclusion is a very hard thing to solve. My view is diversity is a fact of nature. We are all as diverse as it gets. Any You pick any dimension of diversity. Mm-hmm. And inclusion is a choice. And it is a choice that you have to make every day. And for me, at the end of the day, if even if, if you take, there are a lot of humane and moral arguments for diversity and inclusion. And I think all of us would agree with them. That is the right thing to do. And that is the bottom line. But if for a moment you have to take the argument of, we are all about profits, we are all about revenue, There is a strong case to be made for diversity and inclusion even there. Mm -hmm. High-performing teams 
are required in order to deliver great business results. You cannot have high performing teams if the teams aren't doing their best work. And there are a lot of barriers to teams doing their best work. It could be that they're not happy, they don't feel included. It could be that there is so much homogeneity that there, isn't, there aren't different perspectives and different experiences that are getting added to the conversation. And, and therefore, if what I've always said to a lot of people is any group that I'm a part of, I want that group to be inherently fair in its practices, for the group to be healthy so that everyone feels included, feels like they are finding a fulfilling career at that place, and they are able to do their best work. Mm -hmm. And it is high performing because we are all coming together with an incredible amount of passion and energy to deliver just amazing products. And that to me is about being a fair, healthy and high performing organization. Mm -hmm. But just saying that is not enough. You actually have to analyze it like you would analyze any product. You have to, you can, you have to actively state the end state that you want to get to or the goal or the milestone you want to get to mm -hmm. and have plans on how you will get there. Not all plans will work, not all goals will be met, but in the process, we will realize soon that we will be far better off than where we were had we not undertaken that endeavor. Mm -hmm. And it is the same philosophy that we have with all products and all platforms that we build that mm -hmm. apply to diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I think that our rigorous product managers actually bleeds into how we think about it and whether it is from unless you set goals you won't track goals and unless you track them you won't be you won't meet them and so that mm -hmm. all of those things together are important like mm -hmm. while getting talent from diverse backgrounds is very important changing your workplace to make everyone feel included is equally important making sure that people can do their best work is important as well as when you're doing all of these things making sure that you're talking about it at forums and helping other people along on the same journey is a factor to it. So there is no one solution for it. Mm -hmm. It's a combination of things, but it all starts with the determination that that is what you're going to stand for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in my personal experience as an employee at Braintree, the emphasis placed on diversity and inclusion was real. And it was almost like one of the, the, topics at the forefront of every town hall in all hands that was like front and center I and mean, to your point about how it's not just on a humane and moral grounds it's important but for the, for our business like it it seemed like it was a business topic as well for us so that that was just really cool to be a part it of was. it drives business results mm -hmm. awesome we're getting close to time archie and as we're all wrapping up our 2020 maybe if you could share something that you are optimistic about going into the new year I think we could all use some of that in our lives right now. <laughs> I think 2020 has been a pretty transformational year. It's been very hard, but it has also um, led to a lot of inspiring situations around us. I feel like humanity in general has risen to the occasion. And with all of that inspiration, I think when we look at 2021, I feel like collectively we've all learned a lot of lessons in how to just be better and do, do more for each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what is going to stay with us as we go into 2021. Hopefully there will be a vaccine soon. We start getting back um, into offices, but it would have fundamentally transformed us in the way we think about how we spend time at home, how we think about work and how we think about each other more importantly. 
Mm-hmm. And so for that, I am very hopeful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Thanks again, Archie. I am super excited for everything you've got going on. And if I decide to pick up calligraphy, I'll get a hold of you. Yes, if you need scrappy tools, I'm the person to speak to. 